this workshop is using stories for community health and development in oral cultures. So if that's what you were looking for, um, I'm glad you came, decided to spend your last workshop here. I'm honored, honored by that. Um, if it's not what you were looking for, feel free to leave. I won't tackle you at the door or uh, force you to stay. Um, my name is Tim Brown, and uh, just as we're getting started, um, one note is the PowerPoint and some notes will be up on the website for the conference, so don't feel like you have to take a lot of notes. I didn't do a lot of handouts to save uh, paper. Um, and then if you go and look at the PowerPoint on the web, at the end of it are email addresses, and we'd be glad to give you uh, more information. Um, <clears throat> as the program said in this, this slide, my name is Tim Brown. I I have three organizations listed uh, on the slide because they're groups that I actually work with now that have different focuses in ministry, but all connected by uh, how, how, do we, how do we work in oral cultures using um, something we'll talk about called orality. That's, I, I always have to, when I'm talking to people, they hear morality. And so I always have to say orality with an O because it's, it's not a common word and everybody expects somebody... Uh, connected to the church and to be into morality. Um, Vision Synergy, who I work with now primarily, is an organization focused on how do we partner for the gospel, how do we strengthen networks, how do we join hands to do kingdom work and accomplish more than we can do. And specifically, one of the trainings I do in oral cultures is how do we use scripture stories to help people learn partnership skills and principles. Um, acting and drama, and we'll get into that a little bit. T4 Global <clears throat> actually is an organization that probably most closely connects me uh, to this this conference. Um, you know, I'm not a medical professional. The closest I get is my, my son's an RN working in an ICU in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we had dinner Wednesday night before I left, and he prepared me for the kind of discussions that medical professionals have over meals. Um, about body parts, <laughs> so, so I, I came I came halfway prepared. Um, but T4 Global is an orality ministry that works in uh, several countries, identifying strategies for um, church planning that combine audio recorded scripture stories in mother tongue languages with audio recorded community health and transformation information. Uh, put it on MP3 players. I've you know, got a little one that we use called an Audi Bible and customized uh, content for around the world. And uh, so that's really what probably brings me most of the background and what I'll be talking about today. And then, and then the third um, group that I'm strongly connected to is the International Orality Network, which are ministries um, around the world, it's global, that are focusing on this very specialized strategy of how do we become effective communicators of the gospel, trainers, teachers, missionaries working cross-culturally, specifically in oral cultures. <clears throat> now, I don't know how much you all know about this word orality. Some of you come into the room even probably already training it. If you've been around orality for a long time, this is my simple test. Are you a literate learner or are you an oral culture person? So what are these? What's the first one? Circle. How many people say circle? Yeah. What's the second one? And the third one? You know, I always do an assessment of my, my uh, group, and you're all literate learners. If you were to show these symbols 
in an oral culture, you would not get those answers because circle, square, triangle are abstract geometric shapes. The first one, somebody would say, well, that's a ball or a plate. Um, the box, you know, a box, a house, a mountain, you know, is a, is a pyramid. So oral learners in oral cultures, they look at things more concretely. And, and if, if you don't remember much about what I say today, <laughs> oral learners are concrete. They're not abstract. And so when you start thinking about community health information, you have to think in terms of concrete things they can see, feel, touch, and do um, versus things that are beyond their, their vision, like germs. <laughs> you know, we could talk a lot about germs, but they don't really relate to it because it's not uh, a concept. They, they also begin to organize things differently. Now, this is like the grade school test, you know, which item doesn't belong? The log, the hammer, the axe, the saw. How many people say the log, would, they, they say it doesn't belong? Okay. The hammer, the axe, the saw. If you, if you kicked out the hammer, um, you're becoming more oral in thinking. They group things by function. You know, how does it work? If you didn't have a log, what good would an axe and a saw be? It would be useless. So they would, they would toss out the hammer. Another one, what, which item doesn't belong? Plate, knife, cup, and orange. You're probably catching on by now. What three things would be most often used together? The plate, the knife, and the orange. Why do you need a cup? You need a plate to hold the, the orange and a knife to cut it. So they organize things by function, not by, by category differently. There's a sort of a funny story about a Western Ph.D. who was going into an oral culture and trying to teach them how to organize things. And he brought in five plates, five knives, five cups, and five oranges and asked the leader of the village to organize them, put them into groups. And he put the plate and the cup and the knife and the orange all together because that was sort of what he would see on his table. And the professor kept saying, no, it's stack the plates, stack the knives, stack the oranges, pile the oranges. And so they went through this routine for a couple of, uh, of days. And finally, the last day, you know, the professor was upset because the guy wasn't getting it. He said, well, how do you organize these? And, and the oral learner looked at him and says, well, a wise man would put them this way, <laughs> and, and he began to organize them like he always did. So understanding um, oral learners is a place to start. Now, this, this, this slide really gets a, a joke um, and a laugh. It's been floating around the Internet, illiterate, right for free help. Um, unfortunately and sadly, sometimes that's been, as literates, that's been our approach. You know, what do we do with people in oral cultures? And, and I would say in my journey, in my experience, there's three approaches. And the, the first one, and we did this in missions, is we're going to teach them to read. You know, we've got to have literacy programs. They've got to be able to read the Bible. So, but to get to that stage, we've got to teach them to read. We've got to make them like us. And then another approach came along, and I, I, I hate this word. People say we're going to oralize literate teaching, meaning... They go around and they make audio recordings and translate them into other languages. But the material they start with is literate. 
Um, had a friend who worked for HCJB. I think they have a booth, booth here, the people who do broadcasting. And his assignment <coughs> was to find good preaching in the United States and then translators who could just translate the sermons into other languages so they could play them on the radios. But what they found is it didn't change anything because it wasn't just the words being translated in the mother tongue. It was the structure. It was the thinking. It was the thought process. And so the place where most of us, I think, in progressive missions and and trying to work cross-culturally have landed is this word called orality. Um, How do we use oral arts? How do we use their culture's way of preferred way of communicating? And and as you one of the mistakes early on in the orality movement was people said it was a matter of literacy or illiteracy. Can they read and write or can't they read and write? And really it's not. It's, it's a matter of how do they prefer to learn? How do they uh, prefer to receive communications? And in, in the United States today, um, so we'll talk about some overseas applications, but I don't know how many of your churches have been using the story there's a, I know our church out in Tucson is going through the story. How do we use stories to communicate the gospel? One of our supporting churches in, um, in Phoenix, Arizona, actually did the story one year, and now they've created a set of 66 stories from the Bible for discipleship that they use in, in their church. So it's not just about literacy or illiteracy. Well, on the, <coughs> on the screen, I've listed sort of um, some of the, characteristics, I guess you could say, of literate book versus or oral tradition um, cultures. And, and it's really not a verse as I slip there when I use that, uh, <laughs> that word. It's just different, you know. Um, and, and you'll relate to some of these. In book cultures, we like lectures. We like outlines. We like lists, like I've just made up here on the screen. We divide things into parts and categories. Um, we're very individualistically oriented. Here's a book. Go read it. Study it. Um, write in your journal, you know, have your quiet time. Um, and, the, and the bottom two that I've added to these lists that were developed by people smarter than me is that we, we do think abstractly. We begin to, to look at things like circles versus plates. And we really do focus on knowledge. You know, knowledge is information, knowledge is power. But in oral cultures, um, <clears throat> repetition is, is the key. Uh, a lot of my work in, you know, overseas when my Western friends go along with me, they get bored because they say, well, all you're doing is repeating the same stuff over and over and over again. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's how they learn. Um, focus on narrative. They're very event uh, focused. Um, they love stories, songs, and dramas. In some cultures, if you can't sing it, it's probably not going to get communicated. Um, they are participatory learners. They want to act. They want to experience. Down at the bottom, you know, they, they make a lot of their decisions based on experience. They're concrete thinkers. And they, they learn through processing things in community, you know, getting together to talk about it. <clears throat> so some of the keys, you know, for working in oral cultures is we think about community health topics that we're going to get into or just really anything you're trying, any information you're trying to communicate is first, you know, go as a learner and understand the oral culture. Um, it's, it's really an important to understand how the culture works. Um, you know, one of my, my stories from 2011, we were working in North India in an area, and there were two young midwives who were there building a birthing clinic and going out into the villages, calling out the women, doing ultrasounds, and 
they were just starting to learn about the culture and and they went to some villages and they were always amazed because the babies were smaller than they should have been at that stage of the pregnancy and so they started looking at diet and how are you eating and and they found out that the mother-in-laws in the village were telling the women that they didn't want to have big babies because if you have a big baby it's going to be a painful birth and if you gain too much weight you're going to be fat and and all these things and so the culture was actually fighting good nutrition and then you know they couldn't teach really about nutrition so they came up with the color scheme you know what colors of foods are you eating today are you just eating all white rice you know if your day's all white you're not going to be feeding your your baby so you've, you've got to understand uh, the, the oral culture how is it structured um, who do they listen to who's influential and and how do they tell stories even and uh, one, of, one of my early um, adventures in missions was in Ghana, West Africa. And in Ghana, among this tribe, we, our church was partnering with the Eves. Every story that's important is divided into three parts, a beginning, a middle, and an end. The village comes together. The storyteller sits at the front, and he tells part one of the story. They learn a song about part one of the story, and they dance. And then they all sit down and they tell part two of the story. They learn a song about part two of the story and they dance. And then they tell part three of the story, sing a song and dance. And then they do it all over again before they maybe three or four times. It takes a couple hours, but there's not a lot to do in the village at night, I guess. But, um, but that's how they tell important stories. They're very animated. Uh, my wife and I um, did a workshop in Albuquerque, New Mexico, among people working about Native American Indians. I don't know if any of you work with Native American Indians, but important stories and sacred stories are told very softly and quietly with the storyteller just sort of standing in the front of the room with his head looking at his shoes in a quiet voice so everybody's paying attention. So when somebody comes in from outside the culture and does a very animated story, they all laugh and they're entertained, but they're not sure it's important or sacred. So every culture has a way of telling a story. Every culture has a way of discussing the story, and so we just need to be paying attention to those. As we work cross-culturally, the issue of mother tongue and language uh, becomes really critical because words and, and metaphors and how do you pick the right words have different meanings. Um, last few years, my wife and I have really been focused in India, so I have a lot of India stories to tell. But, uh, back in January, I was riding on a train, and I just picked up the discarded newspaper, and lo and behold, there was this article about languages in India. India has um, English and Hindi are the languages of governance. There are basically five majority languages, but there's some four or 500 other languages in India, tribal. And in this article, it noted one tribe down by the coast had over 100 words for wave because they were fishermen. You know, they wanted to know they had a word for big wave, small wave, powerful waves, not just tsunamis. But <laughs> they had 100 words for wave, but one word for snow. Now, up in the Himalaya region of North India, bordering China, there was a tribe that had a, over 100 words for snow and one word for wave because language tells, you know, what's important to us. How do we, we pick the right words? Uh, one of our groups... In India, we were working with, they were telling the story, you know, where Jesus told the uh, um, Pharisees were a brood of vipers. That culture worshiped snakes, so everybody cheered. They thought it was a good thing, you know. So words mean 
mean different things. So picking the right word, but communicating in the local word is, is really critical. And how we do that as cross-cultural missionaries, as we learn language, as we work with language helpers, um, is, is a challenge cross-culturally. But communicating in the local language is important. And then, you know, really beginning to think about the oral arts. You know, not just speaking, not just storytelling, but how do we do story, song, you know, dramas, proverbs. Um, some of the language groups we've been working in the last few years as advisors, you know, if the story is not uh, sung, it doesn't get communicated. And then I made a nice literate list, a story, a song, a drama. And when we were doing this advising with these groups, so okay, now create a story, create a song, create a drama. And they just looked at us and said, well, okay. And then they came back with a story song drama recorded sort of all rolled into one because it was singing and then talking and then some multiple voices. So how do we, how do we help them think about how to sing the story, how to dance the story, how to, to uh, li- live the story as they take it in? And, and then finally, the last point is... Uh, they, they learn by processing the story, having a discussion about the story versus being told what the story means. So the discussion process that we use and the process we train for developing stories, both on scripture retelling and then community health, as I'll be talking about in a minute, is really pretty much the same processes. And then they're used in the same way, bring together a group of people in the village, tell them a story that they can relate to, and then engage them in conversation. What do they like about the story? What don't like about the story? What um, does the story teach them about the subject matter? Uh, is it going to make a change, you know, a change in their life? So you, you, you all came, I think, wanting something practical today. Did anybody not want anything practical? So I, I want to talk a little bit about how does this all work? You know, I've, I've spewed a lot of theory. Um, this picture is from three weeks ago. My wife and I are on this end, and we were in Dehradun, India, uh, working with three language groups that Wycliffe India had brought together. And the purposes of being there was starting a project where in these languages they'll be creating retellings of scripture stories, songs and dramas, and community health information, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, one of these languages, everybody's illiterate because there is no written language. The, the language has no alphabet. It has no script. It's, it's been passed down for generations, just, just orally. So the other two languages, they've begun to develop script. In one language, there's nothing published, you know, because there's no written script. There's no books. There's no dictionaries. There's no, oh, go look this up and see how it's said in the language. I can't go to the local bookstore or look up on Amazon, you know, when I go there. Um, the two other languages are a little more advanced, and they have some translation, but so these are the, the, the teams that were put together. Um, they're all our, our Indian friends and good friends. So the first step we have is on the health side is what topics are important to you? You know, what are the community health topics, treatment? You know, how to, what, what are the big diseases that people need information? How do we help people know when they need to go to the doctor, to the clinic? Um, what, are, what are symptoms? Um, in this group, you know, you, you don't get a lot of stories about treatment because 
uh, some of the information we handed out got real specific, and they said, well, we're not doctors. We want, don't want to tell them what medicine to take, so send them to the clinic. If any of you travel in India, if you tell them what medicine to take, they'll just go to the pharmacy and grab it because you don't have to have prescriptions, which I'm thankful for. I, uh, I have glaucoma, and my, my little Lumigan drops cost me 100 buck copay when I'm in the U.S., and I can buy them for 15 bucks when I'm in India. So... <laughs> But so you, you know, but you want them to identify the topics and what's in, important to them, and then we have them collect information. What is the information specific to your community about this? What is the government published? What's an NGO published? And what's your experience? Now, we're going to get into the story about malaria, and and sort of as a more of a case study of how they did this. But one of the guys in the group, Joy, his picture was up there. He's had brain malaria 30 times, cerebral malaria 30 times. And is he an expert at telling the story about what are the symptoms, how do they treat it, you know, how do you prevent it? I mean, he was, you know, nothing we could hand him and his group would, would give more reality to the story and his ability to communicate to people the importance of, of that. So they collect the information. Um, we have them work in groups, in teams, uh, in these languages. You know, identify what is most important to communicate, um, what needs to be remembered, what are you wanting to be transferred in the community, develop a story uh, that would tell this and communicate it in their culture, storytelling style. And we give them three parameters with community health and transformation topics. It has to be scientifically accurate. You know, they're, they're, and they have to document their resources. You know, where did you get this? Because when we first started doing this, you know, people started inserting their myth. You know, their myth would come out in a, in a way that was being replicated, not in a way that was being dispelled. Now, we want them to dis dispel myths. And, and one of the examples I'll, I'll um, share, we'll, we'll talk about that. But it has to be scientifically accurate. And we have a checking process. We don't just... Say, go tell the story, and nobody's reviewing them. You know, we have a checking process. It has to be culturally appropriate. Culturally appropriate. Um, and that's a challenge. <laughs> we, we learned this last trip. Um, my, my wife and I were in charge of or sort of training the community health side. You know, Wycliffe, India, they're Bible translators. They've got the scripture side down. They understand all that, and they invited us in because they don't have a lot of experience in community health. And so I took a story a friend of mine in Texas had written, and the title of the story was Billy and the Poop, and it was a story about trying to teach hygiene. Now, first thing we ran into was Billy's an American name, and I didn't contextualize it, and I suddenly learned the name in Hindi for cat is Billy. And so the translator was sometimes going on, and I was like, what's up with this? And, and he said, well, I had to explain to him that the brother stepped in Billy's poop, not cat poop, you know, because of the name. Um, so that was the first thing. And then the second thing was we found that one of the cultures talking about bodily fluids was, you know, you just don't do that. And if you've worked cross-culturally, you know, in some cultures, people laugh when they're embarrassed versus laugh when they're funny. And so one of the groups got up to retell this story. That was their assignment. Take the story that had been written in Texas and tell it in your culture. And they tried to 
retell it like they would scripture, which I was hopefully teaching them not to do. So it was a good lesson. This one young man got up and he just couldn't, he was just laughing so hard and and he just could barely get through telling the story and I could tell. And, and so after we were debriefing their experience, I said to him, I said, you know, I've done training around the world and I know sometimes people laugh because it's funny, but sometimes you laugh because you're embarrassed in places. Were you embarrassed by this? And they told me they were mortified that, you know, this story written in Texas would you know, they'd have to think of some other way to tell the story to teach personal hygiene because people would just not even want to talk about. Um, and even my wife was offended by poop. <laughs> she, you know, what word do you use? And, um, so knowing what is culturally appropriate. And then they said in the story, uh, Billy had tracked in the poop into the house and the mothers made him wash the floor. Well, in a dirt floor hut... You know, you're not going to wash the floor. So how is it going to be culturally appropriate? And then it needs to clearly communicate, not create new confusion. And so we sort of set those boundaries of things and, and turn them loose to create stories. So as you can imagine, you know, the map I just put up there is a disease, uh, malaria epidemic country. So it's no surprise that when we surveyed these groups and said, what are important topics? to be telling about in community health, they said, well, malaria is a disease, is, is important to them. And so we begin to think about, you know, um, wh what do they want to communicate about malaria and how do they create a story? Now, I put this big picture of mosquito up to, to remind me to tell you one story. Um, I told you oral learners are concrete thinkers. And so here's a nice magnified picture of a mosquito. And the story goes that a Peace Corps worker was in Africa teaching about malaria and had done a great presentation, had blown up pictures of mosquitoes so that, you know, she could hold them up and everybody could see them and talked about prevention and treatment and symptoms. And as she was walking away, she, um, there were two ladies from the village walking in front of her. And their conversation was something like this. Um, we must not have mosquito malaria in our area because our mosquitoes aren't that big. It's, it's very, very sad that in America they have these big mosquitoes. And, and so they saw the picture now, and another lesson was about pigs, and they wondered how small pigs were in America because their pigs would never fit on a piece of, of paper like that. And, and it does also then go to worldview. You know, there are myths about... That, that stem out of worldview about why we get sick. Um, one of the stories was a, a microbiologist trainer had gone to Africa to teach them how to use microscopes and look at germs and how germs made people sick. And this was like a six-week program. And at graduation, one of the, uh, the, the African nurses who was going through this said, thank you for teaching us why white people get sick. And the instructor said, what do you mean? And she said, well, we all know that the witches flying around at night are the ones that spread disease in our village. And so when you're doing community health and you're doing evangelism or whatever, there are worldview issues. And with community health and sanitation and hygiene, um, there are, are issues in worldview that you have to address. Uh, one of the stories, <laughs> there was a village in Africa where the kids were malnourished and the rats were fat. And the, the worker went in and was walking around and noticed all these holes in the corn cribs where they stored their corn.
corn. You can tell I grew up in the Midwest. I use the word corn crib. But where they stored their corn, there were holes. And he said to the leaders, he said, you know, why don't you block those holes? The mice are getting fat. The rodents are getting fat. And your children are dying. And the people said to him, but how will the mice eat? You know, if we block the holes, the mice will die. And and we're all sort of equal. Well, that's a worldview issue, you know, that... You know, they have, they don't have a biblical Christian worldview that God's designed us differently than the animals. So sometimes when you're into uh, community health topics, community development topics, you do have to take a step back and try and understand what is the worldview that, that you're trying to address, whether it's a healthcare issue or a community transformation issue. And, and our teams do come up with topics like that. They want to address child marriage in, in, in India. Um, domestic violence is, is rampant in India, so how do they create stories to do that? But for this example, we'll stick to healthcare and, and malaria. So we, we took malaria as an example, and, and we talked with them. They said, okay, how do we tell a story that will give the symptoms so that people in our village will know, gee, it's time to go to the doctor. How do we dispel some of the myths? Uh, maybe a little bit about treatment. You know, what, what the doctor's going to do, take this medicine, you've got to take it all, what do you do with your fever? And then the third is prevention. And what they find is, you know, you could tell all those in one big long story, but we encourage them to create different stories, stories about prevention of, of malaria, mosquito nets, coils, you know, the basic stuff that we all know. Um, so they divided it into those those topics, and then I'll read you. This is a back translation of a couple of the stories in this workshop that were written three weeks ago. So the first one's about malaria. It says, in a village lives a boy named Sunu. One day, unexpectedly, his, his health, and this is back translation, his, his health got collapsed, <laughs> made bad health. He got a fever and a severe cold, and he started shivering. He lay down on the bed, put blankets over his body, and he, when he went to get a blanket, his mother came and saw him and said, What happened to you? Sunu replied to his mom. He says, I've got a fever. And then she saw him begin shivering very strongly, so the mother stayed there. And when evening came, the father came home, and the mother told him Sunu got a fever. And the father went to him and said, What happened to Sunu? And Sunu says, I've got a fever. And the father said, Let's take him to the hospital. But the mother started fighting. First, we need to take him to the witch doctor. And later we can take him to the doctor. And the father said, okay, let's take him to the witch doctor. And so they took him to the witch doctor, and the witch doctor chanted a few verses and told them that the gods and goddesses were angry. And But because of my chant, I've appeased them, and it's solved. And so they took Sunu back home. For a while he was all right, but then after some time he began affected by fever and became runny nose and shivering. And when he was shivering, Sunu's aunt, had a visit to their house and saw what was happening. And she asked, what's happening with Sanu? And the mother told her that he got a fever. And aunt said, does Sanu have a cold? And the mother said, yes, he has a runny nose. And the aunt said, does Sanu shiver? And the mother said, yes. And the aunt told her, I think he's got malaria. I think you should go to the doctor. And so Sanu's mother accepted what she was told, and she brought him to the doctor and when he was there with the doctor, he asked, how long have you been suffering from this fever? And they replied, many days. Well, the doctor then gave him a blood test, and when the report came back from the blood test, it was malaria. The doctor prescribed him tablets and medicine and told him he must not be given the medicine on an empty stomach. And 
When his fever gets high, dip a piece of cloth in cold water and put it on his forehead and on the palms and on his feet, and he'll get some relief. And also, Sanu must sleep in a mosquito net and keep the surroundings clean. Give him boiled water to drink and rice soup to eat and drink. And after a few days, Sanu became very well. So in just a matter of, you know, a few hours, they, they, they created a story that they could go into the village that people would relate to because it's their people. And the process they would use is they would go in and tell that story, and then they would just use simple questions. You know, what happened in the story? Do you remember what happened? What happened with the witch doctor? Um, what do we learn from this story? Um, another story along the same lines is, you know, in, in the village, one small village, uh, there were two women. Two of them were named Sanu, uh, Sanju and Manju, and they were close relatives. Everywhere they went together, they did everything together. In September one day, during the night, the mosquito bit both of them. After two days, they were both affected by fever with, with vomiting and headaches, shivering, sweat, and heat. And they got together and said, what are we going to do? And the elder sister said to the younger sister, I know one doctor. I'm going to him. This time, the younger one said to the elder, I know a witch. I'm going to him for witchcraft. Second day, the elder went for treatment to the doctor, and the doctor asked what happened, and she explained her symptoms, shivering, fever, headache, cough. doctor told blood tests can be tested. After testing, the doctor said it's malaria. And he said, for your betterment from fever, malaria, you take the medicine I'll give you, and you'll be okay. If the fever gets high, hot coughing, getting wet, uh, hot coughing hot cotton, getting wet on forehead, land, leg and hand apply, and drink lots of water. After getting medicine, she went back home. The younger came back home from the witch and said, he told her he needs two bottles of alcohol and one chicken, and then it'll be okay. The doctor said elder one did. What the doctor said, the eldest one did. What the witch said, the younger one did. The elder one became okay. The younger one's condition got worse. After two, three days, the older brought the younger one to the doctor. They all took medicine, and everyone got better. So those are just simple stories, basic stories, that then they would begin to use using dialogue and, and discussion um, in, in their villages. Um, so I think at this point, I uh, can, can open it up to questions that may have been raised um, in, in this discussion, and I, I do applaud you for, you know, this is a large crowd for the last workshop of any conference, and everyone's head spinning, and yeah. How do you do Bible stories? Or, like, you kind of talked about how to do that stuff. Like, how do you translate Bible to Okay, the question goes over to the scripture side of how do we translate um, the, the Bible stories, and, and briefly, it's, it's how do they accurately, it's sort of the same principles. It's not scientifically actual, accurate, but it's scripturally accurate. And so we focus on meaning-based translation. Um, it's culturally appropriate, and it's clear. And it, you know, the, word, the world of translation is really tough, and that's why we partner with people. I'm not a translation expert. I barely speak English some days. Um, so we, we find good partners who know the language, know the culture. We engage them in dialogue and discussion in the process. Don't do it alone. 
and then we just have lots of stories. You know, in in 2012, I was in uh, North India, and I found out later I was introduced as Tim Brown from a city in the state of Arizona in the U.S. that had two sons um, because of how he heard Tucson. He heard it two sons. Um, you know, and it, anybody who's worked cross-culturally through a translator can tell you the horror stories. My my wife's my wife's favorite story I tell is one that came out of Ukraine. Um, a pastor friend had decided to use an illustration about his good shepherd dog, his German shepherd dog, and uh, the young man translating for him didn't know dogs very well. He knew in his church they called their pastors shepherds, and so. The story went something like this. Um, back in America, my best friend is my German shepherd, which was translated back in America. My best friend is a pastor from Germany. And my German shepherd loves me unconditionally. And I know that because every day I come home, he runs down the lane, he jumps in my lap, and he licks my face. And, and at that point, the translator goes, I think I missed something. Um, so... So it's not it's not easy. I mean, I would I would say it's not easy. It's just you do it with teams, work with partners. Um, don't do it on the fly. Translation on the fly will lead to misunderstandings. So, and another question. Do, does the Orality Network have any um, studies where they use stories in public health to change the perception of health issues? So the, the question, I'm repeating the question for the tape. So the question was, is there any rigorous research um, on the effectiveness of orality and community health issues? Um, there's none that, that I'm aware of. T4 Global that I work with, we've done pre and post studies uh, in the language and some of the language groups where we would go in and we would use a, um, a survey. Um, and part of the survey is scripture, part of it is community health topics, so we would ask them, what do you know about malaria before, um, before these are released into the community with the information? And then we would do a post-test two to three months later, and we've, we found the dial moves on the community health topics in Scripture. Now, I, I didn't tell you at the beginning, you know, my background is business, and I have an MBA, and I, I was in marketing, and so I understand research, and the research was done to get funding for the next grant, and I, I, um, I wouldn't call it rigorous. <laughs> I, I, the research was sort of grant-focused. I, I sat next to somebody who did a workshop on research here, and she said every researcher knows that you can get whatever answer you want if you try hard enough. So I don't know if that answers your question, which is some, a long way of saying there's none that I'm aware of that probably would would answer this. I, you know, I... We'll look around, and if you leave me an email, if I find some, I'll send it your way. Um, so another question. But th thanks for asking that. Yeah. Could you maybe discuss um, the use of piloting um, stories or mm. you develop a curriculum getting someone from the community and kind of piloting on that before you to avoid disaster. Actually, I, I'm glad you brought that up. The question was, do we do pilots to test the information? 
And the answer to that is yes, and I apologize. I should have talked about that because uh, if you go to the website, there's a handout that's sort of the guide of preparation of stories. And so the next step from what I read to you is they would record that story. They would take it into a village, and they would test it for two things. One, retellability, because in orality, you want them to repeat the story to the next person, um, and you want them to repeat it accurately. So there's a retellability test and then a, a continued accuracy test uh, before final recordings are made and released. And we do that with scripture stories, too. It's the same process, just a simple MP3 recorder. Um, the team makes an audio recording. They go out. With scripture, we try to have them find what they call, a, what Cliff would call an uninitiated native speaker, somebody who's never heard this information before. With health topics, it's, it's not as critical. So, yeah. Have you ever got any, uh, like on the malaria example, when you've actually tested it, and where there's witch doctors in the village that they sort of get some pushback? They don't like to see you. Yeah, the, the question is, is in some areas when we do like a malaria story that, uh, that discredits the witch doctors, is there pushback? And, you know, that's since the beginning of time. You know, you can read the story in the New Testament about Paul getting all the idol makers a little upset um, on his, his journeys. And so, yeah, there is pushback. But, again, experience is the key for oral learners. Is, and I have, I have friends on the evangelism side who say it's not knowledge that causes somebody to come to know Christ in India and some of these rural areas. It's experience. They know somebody. They themselves have been healed miraculously. The, a family that tried desperately to have a baby became pregnant after they were prayed for by a pastor. So there's some experiential piece of their decision. And it goes back to this you know, we, we're knowledge-based people and their experience. You know, a great experience story uh, it was told is there was a man in a village who kept getting typhoid. And he kept going to the doctor. And the doctor kept giving him information about, you know, with the typhoid, we've tested your water. It's coming from your water. Don't drink the water. Man comes back into the hospital third time with typhoid. Doctor says, you know, what's up with this? And the guy said, yeah, I know all this stuff. And he repeated back everything he'd been told. And he reached under his bed. He pulled out of his bottle of water. And he said, but my water tastes so good. And so his experience and his history was preventing him from making the shift to listening to what the doctor told him. And experience is a powerful thing. I mean, even in our own lives of, you know, you know in medical professionals, <laughs> you you give all kinds of advices to guys like me that need to lose a little bit of weight and uh, keep my cholesterol down and put my eye drops in so my glaucoma doesn't get out of control. And I try and listen as best I can, but I'm not always as good as I should be. So, other questions? Good questions. I enjoy speaking because that's how I, I, I learn. I learn by interacting. And so thank, thank you for uh, in, in inviting me. Um, I guess we still got a little bit of time, but we don't have to take 100%. I, I, I have a friend who does public speaking, and he, he starts his speeches by saying, my job is to talk and yours is to listen. If you get done before I do, raise your hand. Uh, my wife and children often tell me that. Um, and so I've never had anybody dissatisfied if we get done if we get done early uh, up on the screen 
Um, I've put some contact information. And then I did bring um, some prayer cards that I had in my bag. And if anybody wants to take one, it's a picture of the team that was up on the screen. It has a little information about the languages. And if you're interested in putting it on your refrigerator and praying for them the next six months to ten years that they're working, hopefully they'll be that long. But six, six to ten months is the primary target for what we'll be doing. But uh, they'll be working long term, so feel free to take one. Yeah. I've seen a lot of uh, workshops for training in orality relating to story, scripture story. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there similar types of training for those of us interested in developing further abilities and using orality and orality, orality-based strategies for community health and development? The only ones I'm aware of is uh, medical ambassadors in the Global Chain Network. Some of you may be familiar with that. A guy named John Payne, I guess he's head of medical ambassadors now, has done some work that sort of bridges that. Um, I, I think that's an area of, of growth in the orality movement. The orality movement that I've been part of is really started on the scripture side, and that's why a lot of the training that my wife and I have worked with, have taken and replicate in the field has been on the scripture side. Uh, two years ago, God just sort of closed the door on that side and said, okay, how do you figure this community health stuff out to make them work together? And so our journey the last two years has really been learning on the community health side. How do we help them find accurate material? How do we make sure the process um, has checks and balances so it's replicated well? Um, there's a little bit most... Well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. It's funny. You know, the International Orality Network just started publishing an orality journal, and all my friends in the movement, except my wife, tells me I need to write a book. But uh, you know, they write books about orality, and that's sort of the joke. Is is the primary artifact now a body of documents? Um, it's a it's a new field, I think, in in this area. The people that I know that have done the most are really my friends with the Global Chain Network. Um, and they've had a lot of impact around the world. And in, in fact, when we started in on the malaria exercise, I gave them some information in Hindi that a medical doctor in India had given us. And 10 minutes later, one of the young consultants in the picture there came to me with his Che material on malaria and said, can we use this? So um, I would start by talking to the Global Che Network folks and John, John Payne. Good questions. Any other questions? If not, let me pray for us and we'll just get on with our day. Father God, we do thank you for the world you've created, for the opportunity to serve you by serving others, Lord. I just pray that uh, throughout this conference you've uh, been speaking to each of us uh, where we're at, Lord, encouraging us for uh, for your kingdom, uh, the great expectations that, that we can have, the roles and the parts we can uh, play. I pray that you just help us all filter out the good stuff from the stuff that... Uh, Maybe, maybe we shouldn't focus on, Lord, help us prioritize what's best for your kingdom uh, so that we can be good stewards of all that you provide us. So thank you for this day of giving us to live for you. And in all things, we just lift up and want to make famous the name of Jesus. Amen.